Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me, the podcast. My name is Madeline Heather and on today's episode, I have the absolute honour of introducing a guest to you that has gone through absolute hell and back, but she's also come out the other side absolutely thriving. My name is Jenna and I'm a survivor of domestic, narcissistic and sexual violence. Yes, and Jenna and I met recently actually um, via Instagram I followed Jenna. She runs an Instagram called The Thriver Project and it's been such a wonderful platform to meet Jenna through this, I guess through isolation and everything in Melbourne too. It has been quite difficult. So for me, uh, Jenna and I have have become survivor friends and it's been um, wonderful to to get to know her and I'm so excited to be interviewing her today and for her to be able to tell her story. So Jenna, can you tell me a little bit more about about you um, and who you were before before this started? Definitely. I'm actually born in New Zealand um, but have lived in Australia since I was 13 years old. I am the youngest of three siblings and my parents divorced when I was about five. So we grew up with our mum who was a very strict, hard-disciplined Jehovah's Witness. We went to church about three times a week growing up until I was about 18 years old and then I left the religion. So I was always sort of a person who was a bit wary of my own identity for a really long time, um, well into my 20s, and um, growing up where you live your life by the Bible, uh, sort of a lot of your values stem from the religion giving you your values and you living your life based on those values. So Yeah, you don't have like a sense of autonomy to a degree. You've been told what to think and that must have been a difficult kind of thing once you've left. Who are you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think with the fact where you don't really know what you don't know, but looking back I was never, ever encouraged to have, you know, critical thinking or be curious about the world. Everything was very black and white and the thought of 
challenging or questioning someone was very much frowned upon. Yeah, I think that was, looking back, it was quite difficult to live a lot of my life in that headspace, you can call it. Yeah, like never encouraged to have that sense of autonomy. Yeah, definitely not. Um, It was a very much uh, do what I say, not what I do upbringing, not just, I guess, not solely from my mother, but a lot from the people in the religion. And so I've always sort of been one of these people, even in my within my career, where feedback I would receive from my bosses would be that you're quite robotic and that I never question things. And if someone said to me, I need you to do X, Y, Z, I would say, how do you want it done? Because if I were to think of doing it another way or, God forbid, use my own initiative, then that could potentially be the wrong way and I could get in trouble. Yeah, and I think that's quite understandable as well that you've got a sense of if I do it wrong, there's a consequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, And and I I think with the religious upbringing being taught to never step out of line, I made sure I never stepped out of line ever. So if someone tells me to do something, I will do that thing. It's quite um, difficult to hear that because – you know, for so many people, religion is supposed to be this beautiful sanctuary of faith and giving and things like that. But you just hear so many, so many stories of it removing somebody's autonomy or, you know, making them act in blind faith and not questioning things. And um, it's really hard to hear that. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it, blind faith. Um I think when you've been brought up your entire life from being, you know, a baby until you're 18 and you don't know any different, I think. It's not until you kind of live in the world where you start to learn different things and kind of question some of the things you were brought up with, but not really to a full extent. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think especially if you're living in a community of people who follow that same religion, you're not questioning much of that. You're not Um, surrounded by people who have those different views so it really reinforces it to a degree as well yeah yeah definitely Um, and it's not like you know I've got friends that have been in cults and they're brought up in a small community where everyone is like that and they don't leave that community we're being brought up a Jehovah's Witness and when you're at school you're kind of half in a community of the religion but half out here in the world trying to live a very faithful life I guess as well um so they would talk about you know don't go out into the world everyone's worldly don't leave because when Armageddon comes you know the retribution of it is you're going to be killed in a fiery hell if you do something you're not meant to do so Oh my god! I didn't. It's so, um, yeah, I shouldn't have said. Oh my god! Um, oh my word! <laughs> That's um, it's it's just so profound to hear these things and imagine hearing them as a child. I mean, I grew up in without religion. We didn't have any, and I didn't have any fear that my actions would um, have strict consequences. And the thought of death and fire and stuff as consequences it makes sense that later in life you would just just do those things because you've had this fear instilled in you for so long Mm. yeah definitely I think it also came from uh, because I was the youngest of three siblings and my brother and sister had left the religion when they were teenagers um, I think there was almost like a guilt that I felt that 
because I was the youngest, I didn't want to leave my mum. So I got baptised at like 17, um, basically because I didn't want to disappoint her or for her to feel like all of her children would die in this fiery hell. So um, yeah, stuck it out a bit in the end because I didn't want to disappoint my mum and that was, yeah, there was always this fear of disappointing people. And are your siblings um, boys or...? Uh, I've got an older brother and I've also got an older sister. Okay. Because I just think as well, like as women, we are programmed or we're taught from a young age as well to be very much pleasers and we do the right things. And, you know, as being the youngest and having that happen, I think also you've probably got this societal expectation that you need to be this loving caregiver that's going to fix things. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's very much of what my personality was like too. And um, I guess you could say I was a bit maternal at to some degree as well but there was a large part about me that um, wanted to just take care of things and if something was broken I wanted to fix it and I found it almost like a bit of a challenge where you know that thing's obviously damaged I want to take care of it I'm very nurturing yeah definitely Hmm. so you've gone through um, all of this you've moved to Australia Um, you're in a certain part of your life and then you meet this person. How did that start? So I was 27 at the time and I I just wanted to try something new and I needed a bit of a challenge in my life. Um, well, I definitely got that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, okay, it's okay to laugh about it as well. Looking back, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, to, yeah, to say it lightly. Um yeah. <laughs> so at the time I wanted to actually learn uh, self-defence and I wanted to be able to uh, be able to take my care of myself if I were ever to be in a situation where I needed to protect myself. So I joined a martial arts uh, school in Brisbane and I remember going in there on the day and something just felt a bit off but I kind of ignored the red flags. He, yeah. approached, he approached me and said to me, um, hey, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I just want to learn self-defence. He's like, no worries. Well, I'm just coaching a female in here. She was by herself at the time. There was no one else in the gym. And I said, wonderful. Um, do you want me to come back? He said, no, no, just come in and watch. And I said, okay. So I went in and I sat down and watched her. Um, and he was just talking to me, and I just thought he was this very charming, friendly, um, very caring person. At the time that I had joined, I was very nervous, and it was extremely overwhelming. I felt quite anxious, but he he made me feel comfortable. Yeah, and potentially maybe it's bringing your guard down a little bit as well because there's this other female in there one-on-one with him. Like, this must be a safe environment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I thought, okay, well, this I'm comfortable. This is okay. And he said, well, why don't you come back and do a trial, you know, next week? I said, sure. So I left and I came back the week later and I initially started to do uh, Muay Thai classes for the first week or two and he would sit and run because he was the, sorry, he was the owner and head coach of the school. So he would always be running the 
uh, jiu-jitsu classes, which was on the other side of the school, and just watch me across the mats. And at the time that I would just glimpse over and see that he was always staring at me, I thought, well, I guess he, he, he likes me, I guess. I wasn't really sure. I was pretty pretty terrible at Muay Thai, to be honest, so I didn't think I thought I was good. <laughs> <laughs> He's not eyeing you off for a professional championship. I was not going to be the next Ronda Rousey, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and so I just thought, oh, I, don't, I don't really know why he's looking at me. He started, I think within a week's time, he actually added me on Facebook, which I thought, well, that's a bit weird because I didn't really find that very professional, but I just thought he really cared about everyone that he had come into the gym and he, he probably does that to everyone. So, you know, I accepted, he started talking to me. And then he had asked me if I wanted to go and watch a movie with him. I'm going to say this was after about three weeks that I had been going to train there. And I, I, I felt a bit off, you know. I didn't really want that to be a date. I didn't want to mix the environment of dealing with someone romantically and trying to teach myself self-defense. Yeah, definitely. I, I kind of convince myself and saying like yeah it just won't be a date I'll make sure he doesn't think it's a date so it's not awkward so I said to him look we'll go in separate cars and I'll just meet you there he's like okay and I had got there beforehand and paid for my own ticket so I'm like yes you know he's not gonna think it's a date if I pay for my ticket we're just mates yeah and also you don't have to have that awful back and forth thing where they try and pretend that they're a gentleman by paying for your $2 yeah. movie ticket kind of thing. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. I'm a gentleman. <laughs> but you oh. get the chalk top though because that shit's $7. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you get it. Um, so when we're watching the movie, I can't remember what we're watching, but I could just feel him staring at me the entire time. Oh my God. And I'm watching the movie and I could just see in my like peripheral vision, he's just staring at me. I don't actually even think he's looking at the movie. Like, and then there's a part of me that was kind of like questioning, is this cute? Is it corny? Is it a little psychotic? Or is it, is he just being a bit cheesy? I didn't really know what to think about it because I've never experienced it before. And so I just thought, actually, the movie's been going for about two hours. I, I think he likes me. Um, and then we had left the movie. And I think he had asked me at this point before we'd gone if I wanted to go get some dinner with him. And in my head, I'm like, God, no, that's very date material so I just said yeah I'd prefer not to like I'm gonna go home and have a ham and cheese toasty um see you later and I I'm not even kidding I gave him the knuckles you know you know the knuckles it's like the <laughs> like the a bro, fist bump the bro fist pump. yeah I gave him one of those. <laughs> <laughs> but you're really trying to to show that you don't want a romantic connection here and you're doing all of these yeah, tactics that I guess friend we've zoning. learned through time. How do you, yeah, you sometimes you really try and openly friend zone somebody because you don't want to get into an awkward situation. Yeah, and I think that that also comes back to my upbringing of being brought up in a very strict religious home in terms of, well, I don't want to be rude to this person. 
I don't want to offend this person. So I'm just kind I'm kind of going to try and give subtle signs that I'm not interested. Yeah. And I think that's something that as women, we've been taught throughout our whole lives as if stating to somebody that you're not romantically interested in, in them is an offense to them. And therefore we have to do everything that we can to not offend them, but be nice. You know, I think it's just, it's a society thing as well. Definitely. Definitely. Um, God forbid if I were to actually say no to someone that I'm not interested in because I would rather hurt my own feelings than hurt this person's feelings. But it's also a thing of you feel like you've almost got more control to a degree if you try and friend zone somebody because they'll just get the idea themselves. Whereas it's like if you turn around and and openly just say, look, I'm really not interested in you, that you're probably going to get yelled at. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a large part of me, particularly when I was younger, where I could not handle confrontation. I mean, I don't love it now, but um, I've grown to kind of avoid situations that could be sticky by just being up front these days. And so back then I was just any form of confrontation I just wanted to completely avoid. And I think as well, like you've obviously in this situation, you go back, you you know, you've said it yourself, you want to make sure that you don't mix these two things. You want to have um, this new self-defense as a part of your person, as a part of your hobbies, as what you do. You don't want to ruin that. Mm, yeah. I think the first, looking back now, the first red flag, major red flag was actually that night that we went to the cinema because after I gave him the, what do you you call it in Australia, the knuckles? Fist bump. Fist bump. After I'd given him that, I kind of went, all right, well, I'm going to go to my car. He didn't know what kind of car I drove. I was backing out of the car park. I could see that he was behind me. He didn't know that it was me in the car. But I went to the boom gate to pull up my ticket and I couldn't find the ticket. He was directly behind me, still not knowing that it's me at the boom gate. And it took me ages to try and find this ticket. And he, I could see him in the rearview mirror. He was just going off like this very aggressive manner, beeping the horn, telling me to hurry up. And I was so embarrassed at this point that I just went, oh God, I don't even want him to know that this is me that's, like trying to find my ticket. This is so embarrassing. I'm so embarrassed that he's like beeping at me. I quickly found it and put the ticket in and then I drove off. To this day, he still does not know that that was me who was beeping. But that right there was the first red flag. And I got- Yeah, you can see this person's true colours that they're, you know, when he's not trying to impress you, he's, you know, behind somebody in a car park tooting them, getting very aggressive at them because there's an inconvenience to his time. Yes, 100%. So, yeah, that was, um, that was that was the first date. The first non-date. First, date. Well, yeah, the first interaction where it was just you two alone yeah. um, in a non-training environment. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah and then what was training like the next time that you went in? Mm, good question. Um, I get the feeling that he had told a lot of the people – at the gym that he had gone on a date with me because I remember coming in and I think by this point I had started doing jiu-jitsu at this point and I just remember people looking at me and him looking at me and talking about me when I walked in and it was just kind of almost like this I'd been on a date with you know the new hot chick at the gym yeah um 
And that's quite embarrassing because you're in a position now where almost there's this expectation. It's, it's kind of like a privacy breach, right? You know, you, you, you're trying to do the right thing and everybody is now looking at you because they think that you're going to date the boss. Yeah, and that was something that I just think I felt from the get-go made me quite uncomfortable and I kind of somewhat had questioned, is, is that appropriate, firstly, to ask a student on a date and then secondly, tell everyone about it? I don't know if that was appropriate. Again, this is my first time at a martial arts gym. I'm not really sure what etiquette is. Yeah, I think in any environment, though, you know, dating a a client is not really on, but especially as the boss to kind of outwardly say it to everybody, it is a bit bizarre. Yeah, yeah. So from there, I just went to um, the jiu-jitsu classes throughout the week and then they had an all-women's jiu-jitsu class that he ran on the Saturday morning. And there's probably okay, yeah. eight females that went to this class. Um, and the class promoted self-defense for women. So, Which I think ends up becoming quite ironic, doesn't it? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, so then I, I guess from there, going to the classes regularly, I ended up, he invited me to his house. Um, and then things kind of just sort of grew from there. And he'd always been for the first six months this very charming person who played this position of always caring about me and always wanting what's best for me. And I remember him, you know, asking me, what is it that you like in a guy and asking me questions like that. And then questions like that, I always used to think that's really, that's really attentive that he would really ask what sort of things I look for in a guy. And then I think now you know, through the research I've done and reading books on narcissistic abuse, I actually realised that that's what they do at the start and whatever it is you say you want, that's what they become. Yeah, it's almost like like love bombing almost where you're, you're getting all of your needs met even over and above all of that and you're just completely overwhelmed and you say you want somebody that's spontaneous, they do something spontaneous, you want something that's this and they, they meet that instantly because I think they want, they want to very quickly become the whole centre of your life and it's so easy to fall into when you've met the perfect person. Yes, yeah, 100%. And so he became the perfect person really and he, I didn't realise that, the time but he groomed me for the first six months of dating him by asking me specific questions and asking you know what do you think of this porno or what do you think of this guy doing this to this woman and things that were very subtle throughout the first six months that all really added up to the abuse in the end yeah he's trying to like really gradually start to to get you into this kind of information. So he's not coming all out with it as a discussion at one time. He's trying to slowly um, drip, drip, drip this information into your mind to kind of normalise it. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And, yeah, I just those little things, I guess because he had already portrayed to be this person that I was madly in love with, and he was the perfect guy, he would say things at the end of some of those conversations where he would say stuff like, I like women who 
like to pose nude in photos and be posted online. I think it's hot when a woman will have a gangbang with five men. And what are your thoughts on that? And obviously, like, I did not like that. It was something extremely uncomfortable for me, but because I had thought that I'd fallen in love with this person, I wanted to do anything I could to please him. And if it meant doing things that I wouldn't normally do, then I'll just get over it. I'll just do whatever he wants to be this fantasy that he wants in his life. Yeah, I mean, and and it goes back to that earlier, what we were talking about, that you've kind of been groomed your whole life, like before you've even met your offender, to be a people pleaser, to be somebody that that must do things for, for people to make other people happy and and I think you know you've you've been treated so you know in inverted commas well by this man and he's this ideal person for you in every way it's almost like you owe him this like I can imagine that being a feeling yeah yeah you know he's really gone out of his way to um, help me out with my martial arts and really to give me these private lessons with jiu-jitsu and oh, he's giving me free lessons now. Like, oh, I owe it to him to do this or I owe it to him to do that. Um, so there's a sense of um, needing to please him because of things like that as well. And then I think after this sort of six-month period came, we were living together. and So it's progressed quite quickly. Extremely quickly. Um, I think the I love yous were within the six-month period as well. But he said to me, you know, I've always had a background in the fitness industry for the last 10 years and I had a um, quite a high role working for a franchise owner as like a regional manager in sales and marketing for gyms. And, you know, that was my life. It was my career. And he had said to me at this point, I think that, it's time for you to leave your job now. And then I said, right. well, what am I going to do? And he said, well, what are your thoughts on maybe getting into porn? Well, thought, well, I guess with all the things that I've been showing since the time we've been together, like, yeah, like that sounds pretty normal. It sounds like the next step, you know, like we've gone from, doing nude and lingerie and bikini shots to be posted online of me and it it makes sense that that's the next step so yeah and if you've if you've had a really good reaction from him by doing those things I mean imagine the reaction if you take it to that next step as well and you want to be this perfect person for him yeah and I I had I had figured at this point um he was extremely addicted to porn and he was a sex addict, he is a sex addict, and I just thought, well, if I can fulfil this person's fantasy, that's the ultimate way of repaying him for everything he's done, and this is a great way to make him happy. Yeah, and it's it's just like ringing some bells in my mind for, you know, that coercive controlling behaviour and coercive control being a, um, a phrase coined by Laura Richards um, it's like this pattern of behaviour um, designed to control the victim. So, you know, you isolate them, you monitor their behaviour, um, you gaslight them, you, and one of them is limiting access to money. So, you know, you're kind of being 
removed from, you know, a bit of sense of your autonomy, having your own career, having your own gym with this suggestion as well, you're probably limiting your access to making money and, and, and gaining a financial dependence on him. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, which I didn't realize at the time leaving my job, but he had convinced me so much so in a way of leading down the pathway of becoming a porn star that I thought I'll be making, you know, the big bucks, like money's not going to be an issue. So I left my job and wow. he got me to start out with having sex with strangers, sometimes one-on-one where he would watch, a lot of the time he would watch, and then sometimes in orgies which he would partake in or he would watch. And I'm not talking like Channing Tatum, like looking guys. I'm talking like your 60-year-old. Yeah, that's not something that you actually want to do. You're not sitting here going, oh, I'm looking forward to going to this sex party tonight um, where it's all consenting adults under 40 that are quite fit and good-looking. No, no. And I remember kind of bringing them up with that at one point being like, is there any way I could potentially sleep with someone who's good-looking and young? And he said to me, no, because a good, well-trained slut is more powerful when she is sleeping with guys who she actually wouldn't want to sleep with. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Which just means that like she's She's very powerful in the sense where she can do whatever she's been told to do and if she doesn't challenge her or if she doesn't say no because she doesn't want to do it, then that's what makes her powerful. And so I wanted to be this powerful person and by this point I had signed a slut contract that he had not legally had binded by a lawyer um, with a lot of clauses on it and one of the main clauses was that I couldn't say no to him. And if I said no to him, then I'd be beaten. So even questioning things like that, I knew that I was a bit past tapping on a, you know, a very thin line, but I just found it extremely like emotionally and mentally excruciating to have sex with these old men whose name I didn't know. He just drove me to the house. He would set up a video camera and film me being fucked by these men. And a lot of the time, like my psychologist now says, I dissociated throughout it. So it was just like I just left my body and I put on this face where I smiled the entire way through the rape and abuse every single time Um, because if I showed how I really felt, then there was a part of me that didn't want to disappoint him and I didn't want him to get angry. Yeah, and I mean it would just be that that line and – you know, you've lost your autonomy to a sense with the job and you're trying to do all these things and you're trying to please him and he's now literally built in to a contract form for you where you can't say no to him. Like this isn't, you know, in any any sexual environment, I mean I've got a lot of friends who attend sex parties that are bisexual that get into group sex situations but it's a hugely consensual and respectful environment. And, and this environment is not that. This environment is, is rape. You don't want to have sex. You can't say no. Like there's no yes, there's no I want to do this. I, I'm happy to be here. You've been coerced and controlled into being in this situation that you don't want to be in. And it's just my heart actually just breaks for you because it's that's so traumatic to even think about. And Oh, how how awful. And I think by this point um, I did feel extremely isolated. Like a lot of my friends I had through my job and I was just so ashamed of the position that I'd got myself into that I didn't want to tell anyone what I was doing. I didn't want to – I don't want them to judge me for, you know, wanting to go into a career of the porn industry. I was just humiliated and ashamed of myself. I guess by this point with all of the things that he made me do with other men, I just didn't feel very good about myself at all. And so when I got to this point where I didn't feel good and I knew that I was dissociating from being in those experiences, because I had left my work, he got me to do cam work online, having sex with strangers you know, doing shows and masturbating and toys and all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah. they would be around the world and, like, I'd have an account where they put money in. I never saw that money. 
he would take me away to, you know, he would say, do you want to go to Byron Bay for the weekend or let's go there for a few days? And I'm thinking, well, this is a great way to try and to escape this life because he was obviously addicted to it. I get to have a break. Um, he would still set up people to have sex with me there and he would also get me on a public beach or we'll go to nudist beach where he would take photos of me for hours on end and I was extremely uncomfortable and I would like fight about it with him and then he would get really angry and you know like gaslight me in the sense of just would not speak to me and gave me the silent treatment um I wasn't able to talk to him in this scenario so I would just end up doing whatever he wanted me to do and it's like you've been like physically and emotionally exhausted to this point as well. There's like a level of exhaustion here. There's a level of threat here. There's a level, you know, there are so many factors that are coming into it and you're probably, you know, questioning your own sanity to a degree if he's gaslighting you too. So it's, it's, it's not easy to understand how to get into this situation just by looking at it. But by hearing all of this, you can just hear how, you know, I can imagine your mind just running through a million and one scenarios. Like you're, I'm going to, do I start a fight with him? I can't say no, I've got this contract. I'm exhausted. And all of this stuff is just going on and on and on. And it sounds like it was every day. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely every day and I, I couldn't get a break. And then there would be like that small window of, potentially when we're out in public he was a certain person and so in front of people he was a certain person and being in public and having that in front of people that was my small break of going okay I don't need to be fucked by strangers right now this is nice to just have a couple of hours where I can just be normal yeah today I'm me today Today I get to be myself yeah and then it got to a point where I had question my own sanity to this point because of all the narcissistic abuse and gaslighting, stonewalling and everything that I kind of went, I think there's something wrong with me. And he said, what do you think's wrong with you? I said, I just, I don't feel okay. I feel everything that a woman who would have battered, you know, woman syndrome would have. And not that I said this to him, but this is how I felt. Um, and he said, maybe you should go see a psychiatrist. So I went to the psychiatrist who put me on 100 milligrams of antidepressants. After that, I was just this zombie. I was absolutely numb. I remember my sister seeing me at this point and saying, I would have conversations with you. And you were basically dribbling and looking at a wall. Wow. So you've, you've, your mental state is now taking, uh, taking a massive turn as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I guess this would make you more vulnerable as well. Did you did you tell the psychiatrist the situation or did you just go through what you were feeling like? Yeah, I just went through what I was feeling because I was so ashamed that if I were to tell this person what was actually happening in the relationship that they would think there's something wrong with me. I was too embarrassed. I didn't want to talk about it. And yeah, if I don't talk about it, it's not happening. Because everything that I thought that I was doing at that point was completely normal, although talking about it was not normal. Well, yeah, I mean, you you hear about it a lot as well with um, child abuse victims, for example. Like this is something that we don't talk about, but this is something that I do now. So, I mean, you know very well that you're not supposed to talk about it. Yeah. And... um... So, yeah, that's when the medication came into play and then um, 
Do you mind me asking by this point, like when you when he's got the contract and he's written in there, you can't say no, if you will, you'll be beaten. Had he started at that point to also physically abuse you or did that kind of come later? Um, I think that came after the medication because after the medication I just became the zombie of myself where I was like walking around and I had no sense of reality at all. And so that is something that I think saved me in a sense because I dissociated most of this point where I just, I don't want to be here. I just need to survive somehow. So if I just go out of my body and I'm just not here mentally, um, then that's my safe haven. Um, I remember... I can't really remember the instance that I said no to him about something and he took me into the bedroom and said, get over my knee. And he had just his hand where he, like, spanked me. But, like, this guy is a second-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu and has a background in martial arts and MMA. So it's not like you know, a 50-kilo woman smacking me on the bum. He's going to town on me, Um, smacking my backside and just again and again and again and I'm screaming and he's just not stopping. And I had to physically try and get away to try and get him to stop hurting me. And I couldn't sit for two weeks after it. And I was like, oh my word, like welted, but like black and blue, black and blue. Yeah. But he's smart in the sense where that's a place where no one can see the abuse physically. Definitely. I mean, and, and he has the ability to hurt you in a lot of ways with his expertise as who he is. I mean, even you as an entry level trainee, who he is means that he could probably kill you or hurt you severely without anybody knowing about it quite easily, without probably exerting much energy for himself. Mm. Yeah. That must have been so terrifying. That was definitely the most brutal um, and there'd be times where, like, I couldn't go to the toilet, like, that the beatings were so bad and then, you know, he would just say stuff to me, like, we wouldn't be in this position if you actually just did what you were told. And so a lot of the time when we are in the space of, well, how did you get here? well, this only happened to you as a repercussion because you didn't do what you were told. And then you start to blame yourself. Absolutely, because you're being told that. Yeah, and I should know better because I know the rules. It's in my contract. Um, Yeah, so that was – that's when things started to get physical and then he started to – he was engaged to a woman before we got together who had been with for quite a while, and she left him. And then she still went to the jiu-jitsu gym where we were at, and he obviously is a narcissist and he would abuse her. So she was, I think, still under his spell a bit. And so he got us to start having sex with her as well. Not long after he, uh, I think we were just fighting all the time, he got me to start escorting had made this, you know, glamour page for me on a website and I was this certain person and 
there's big chunks of this part near the ending of the relationship I don't really remember and my psychologist thinks it's because I dissociated so much that I haven't I've just forgotten these parts of my memory yeah or you're just not even taking them in at all because you're just like you said numb you're just not thinking about it you're just doing what you're told to survive yeah yeah definitely and then I think we had a big so one part of the uh, contract was you know be he, he put it as like an open relationship but I was only to have sex with people he would tell me to have sex with but for him he could have sex with who he wanted to and one of those people was his ex-partner um and he had said to me that these things would only happen based on conversations where I had been told about it and then I think I went and stayed with a family member one night because we had such a bad argument and I had driven past his house I just had a feeling that she was there yeah and I'd driven past and she was there I sent him a message when I got back to my family's house and I said was she at your house and he's like yeah we just had sex um and I was just very, very upset and I just sort of said I thought we were going to talk about this sort of stuff and he's just like, well, you know, you're not listening to me so I'm just going to do what I want to do. Right. And in that moment, I guess, within an open relationship, in inverted commas as well because it's not because you're being controlled and you don't have autonomy here, but that is that that's full blatant cheating now. So there's a lot of things that I assume would have been happening as other flags and stuff, but this would have probably been the first proper identification of cheating. Yeah. And and I think it was also a form of trying to get me back in line to a narcissist way of trying to make me jealous because he was very good at triangulating women and to try and get me to be jealous, to overreact, to go, okay, I'll come back or do whatever you want me to do. But at this point I was so far done by it. I was just like, this is the final straw for me. And it's such a narcissistic trait, isn't it, that they'll push and push and push in the moment that you react. They'll go, whoa, and it makes you look like the person that's initiated that kind of behaviour. Yeah, and that was very, very common all throughout, I guess, particularly this part of the relationship, especially being on medication. He could hold it against me where he was saying, well, you've got a mental illness. Like, I think you're a bit crazy. I think you really need to question your sanity. You're overreacting, and these are things he would – say to me on the daily um and that's gaslighting as well and it would change your perception of what your reality is and that is just such a severe form of abuse yeah yeah and I mean a week after that situation we had cheated I had said to him I kind of distanced myself as little as I could at the time I had to go live with my family for that week after but I went to him and I said to him because I mean by this point I was also like suicidal so I'd cut myself all the time in the shower he would he knew I was doing it wouldn't come in wouldn't do anything I was just so incredibly low and I just felt so dark and it was the darkest moment of my entire life that I really just thought this is just some way of escapism I need to just not feel like I'm here and then so the week after he had cheated I went to him and I looked him in the eye and said if I don't leave you, either you're going to kill me or I'm going to kill myself. And he said something along the lines of, well, oh. well, that's not going to happen if you actually do what you're told. That's just um, that's so profound, I guess, to hear that. And 
I'm sure at that time you're weighing up the risk factors yourself and, and there's a level of you that really does believe that he might kill you and and to be at a point where you've got nothing else to live for as well. Mm. And I just remember and I recall looking in the mirror and I did not know the woman that I saw in, in the mirror and I was just so incredibly empty and I just remember just feeling extreme like feelings of humiliation just like just pain at its worst I didn't want to feel like that but I also didn't know how to get out of that situation or even know where to start yeah definitely I mean where, where do you start you can't just leave you've you've now not got a source of income you live with this person Thankfully, um, my sister at the time had lived, I'm going to say like 10 minutes away from where I was living with him. I moved in with her and I said to him, we're done. And then he would always message me and text me and say, can I, can I see you? Can I see you? I was like, no, but I just tried to cut off any form of contact. My sister said, are you sure that you're going to like leave him for good. And I said, I have to, I can't be with this person. I don't see a future with him. He would come and bring envelopes of money. And even though he couldn't see me, he would put it in the mailbox to give to me so that there was some form of hope that I need to have him to still live. Definitely. Like it's a way of like giving you gifts and making you, maybe you'll reconsider, maybe we can work on this, maybe it can be better, but also to exert that dominance of the financial status yeah and it was really hard too because there was a part of me that just felt guilt because I had a really great relationship with his mother and like I felt really guilty and feel I guess at this point but humiliated and ashamed because I didn't know how to tell her you know she didn't know what was happening um yeah absolutely and I'm not sure to what extent she knew what kind of person he was but I didn't know how to explain to her that I was leaving him to save my own life. And um, I remember a few weeks after I had left him, as I was taking things out of their house, I said to her, did you want to catch up for a coffee maybe tomorrow? She said, yeah, that'd be great. So I caught up for a coffee with her and uh, we went to a local mall somewhere nearby and she just said to me, Jenna, I really want you to consider getting back with him. And I I said, what do you mean? And she said, he's told me everything. And she put her hand on my hand and looked me in the eye and said, we'll support you. It's okay that you've got mental health issues. Oh, my word. He's told them everything as in the fact that you've got mental health problems and maybe that you're suicidal but not to the degree of what you've been going through. Yeah. Or the reason why I was like that. Oh, how patronising. Yeah. So I just, I didn't say anything to her. I was just gobsmacked. I, I think I was speechless at this time and I was just like, oh, okay, we'll just, I think I'll drop you off at home now. And that was the last time I saw her. And he said to me after this, can we catch up? This is maybe a month later. Can we catch up and go for coffee? I just really want to speak to you because I just broke in contact with him. And I said, sure, why not? It has to be in a public place, though. He said, yeah, of course. So I went and got a coffee with him and we went to a public park and he just broke down. And I've never, ever seen someone look so broken. And 
it was such a well-played theatric of this is my last call before she actually leaves me. I really need to pull the cards out. I just remember looking him in the eye, completely emotionless about it all, and just looked him in the eye and just said, do you know how I know that I don't love you anymore? And he said to me, how? And I said, because the only thing I miss about you is your mother. Wow. Boom. And then we left. I left. Yeah. And was that the end of it then from there? Was that there's not been any contact since? There was one time after I missed doing jiu-jitsu. So a few weeks after that, I messaged him and said, do you mind if I come back and do just a class? I really miss jiu-jitsu. Because I tried a few different gyms. But they just, I don't know, it was a bit different. It wasn't really what I was used to. Maybe I wasn't used to not having a sleazy head coach. I don't know. I thought it was weird. But I went back to his gym and he had had assured me, yeah, but if you come back, it will be a different instructor because I'm going to be in too much pain to see you. And I said, no, it's fine. It makes it even better for me. The other instructor who took me, well, I got there and he, next part at the time was sitting next to him on the mat and ended up basically running the class and got me to come and be a kind of you get people to like show how to do moves on and he got me to do that and he um was just touching me and not sexually but in jiu-jitsu ways and I just felt extremely uncomfortable and I never ever went back so that was the last time I saw him wow so after I left him and we hadn't been out for a few months, I started dating another guy and within about six months we – I just felt extremely unsafe being in Brisbane at the time. So um, this other guy I spent pretty much day in, day out with him. Um, but I had extreme trauma bond to my abuser. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my new boyfriend and I moved to New Zealand Um and we're still together now and very, very, very happy. Yes, this is the beautiful, beautiful <laughs> boyfriend. And I just had the most severe trauma bond after I'd left that abuser and for about a year and it was horrible. It was, it was, it was nearly as dark as being in the actual relationship, to be honest. And And also understanding what love looks like. Um, Having this image painted to me of what a real man should look like and he should be able to fend for him and his partner and he should be able to be powerful and, you know, abuse is considered um, the ownership of a man because you're a woman and you're meant to be owned by a man and you're nothing but as he would always refer to me, a slut. So he wouldn't call me by yeah. my name. I was just a slut. Um, oh. And this is everything that makes a man and an alpha male. And because my now partner is like the most beautiful soul and would do anything for me, six months after I'd left that relationship, well, sorry, six months while living in New Zealand, the first six months that my, my new partner and I together, I couldn't work because my mental health was so bad. And within a month, I think, of being with my new partner, um, I'd come off the antidepressants. And so 
I was basically just trying to learn to be a human, a functioning human again. He supported me throughout the six months of not being able to work and I had such severe um, trauma and trauma bond, um, very, very high PTSD symptoms, um, not being able to get out of bed. I would revert to being in dark rooms and just isolating. Um, And I was horrible to live with. And there was this picture of what a man had to look like to be a man that was so ingrained in my head that when my new partner would try to do things like because I couldn't clean the house, I couldn't couldn't hardly even shower myself um, because he would do those things to help me, I would get really angry and look at him and be like, that's not what a man's supposed to do. Like, So I would just say, safe I would pick fights and get really angry because he would treat me so lovingly and so nurturing and caring that those were qualities that were told to me only a woman would have so I would look at my partner and go what are you doing you're not a real man and he would just put up with this for such a long period of time and yeah it was was horrible um but then it took me it took me probably a good year to unlearn a lot of that learning that I had had, even after a short period of time that I'd been with the abuser. And then I guess that's when things started to change. We moved to Melbourne last year. We've been together just over three years now, my, my new partner and I. And then I've just really, really worked on myself for the last few years to just come back to being myself. And it's the best I've ever felt. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, most of all, I feel just such immense gratitude for you being as strong as you are in telling your story and and just, just such a profound love um, because I think that you're an incredible, incredible woman. Um, and to be able to go through what you've gone through and come out on the other side, back into being a successful businesswoman back into being somebody who is looking after themselves, looking after their mind, looking after everything else. And you're in a really healthy, loving relationship. It really goes to show to, I'm sure so many listeners that there is life after trauma and there's life after abuse. And, and for the lucky ones who do get out alive, there is life after that. And that it doesn't mean it's always going to be the end. And I guess this is why you started the Thriver Project. Do you mind telling us a little bit about the Thriver Project and where can people find you? Yeah, so I created the Thriver Project this year while I was in lockdown. Um, It was a bit of a project that I wanted to start to basically start the conversation of something that's so stigmatised in our society. Um, And it's an initiative creating change through us having these courageous conversations that you and I are having today. And I really want to just break the stigma of the humiliation, shame, pain and guilt that domestic and sexual violence survivors feel after abuse. And I really, really push to show that, you know, I've come out on the other side. I'm fucking thriving. (laughs) Um, You are fucking thriving. (laughs) yes (laughs) um and and I I really do believe that we can all be here at this point because if I can go through what I've been through we can all do it um and I just want to show that hope to others 
definitely. And there's communities of people out there. And um, in the show notes of this episode, I'll link through a lot of resources for Australia and New Zealand. There are a lot of resources and often leaving domestic violence, it's not a one-off thing. A lot of times when leaving people are leaving domestic violence situations, it's something that they need to plan. And it, on average, I believe, takes about seven times. So um, it's really worth having that discussion and it's worth linking those resources so that if you are in a position where you are in an abusive relationship, um, let's get you some help so that you can eventually leave and, and fucking thrive with us queens. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so grateful to have met you and to have you as a part of my life as well. My pleasure. Absolutely happy to be here and to spread awareness. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Exclusions apply. See site for details.